Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against. It's a different kind of business book, based in research, but told as a novel and designed to spark discussion and change about gender equity in the workplace. Thank you for joining this discussion as my co-host Carla Hickman and I talk about the challenges that women continue to face at work that are too often only discussed behind closed doors. Well, hello, everyone. This is Carla. Welcome back. For today's episode, we're going to hear an excerpt from Beyond Leaning In, and it introduces a concept I'm really excited to discuss, mental autocompletes. This is one that really has stuck with me. It's a different way of thinking about unconscious bias. And once you understand the concept, just start to realize how often it comes up in everyday life. We're also going to chat with two early readers. One of my goals with Beyond Leaning In was that it be a book that's both interesting and accessible to women and men. So many women in leadership discussions and conversations about the gender gap are just women talking to one another, and that's exactly what we need to transcend. We can't solve the problem without men being an active part of the discussion and the solution. I've been really excited to have gotten a lot of emails and social media messages from men who are reading the book, in some cases with their female partners. And so I thought an interesting discussion today as we talk about the mental mental autocomplete would be to also talk to two early readers who are a wife and husband, Veronica and Stephen LaFamina. We're going to hear our very first excerpt. Why don't you set the scene for us, tee up what we're about to hear. So I mentioned that the generation gap is a big theme in the book, and we're about to listen to the perspective of a character named Deborah. She is the CEO of our fictional company. She's a baby boomer. She's somebody who's really smashed those glass ceilings across her life. She's been a trailblazer for women. She's been a great supporter for women. And so this audiobook excerpt you're about to listen to, narrated by Brittany Goodwin, is in a chapter where Deborah has a number of realizations of the kinds of things that she'd let slide that younger generations just don't think are okay. That evening, Deborah and her son dined together at his favorite Italian restaurant in Venice Beach. At the end of the meal, Deborah wasn't surprised when the waiter, without ceremony, put the check in front of her son. She enjoyed breakfast or lunch with male employees a few times a month, and this always happened then, too. Even when it was clearly a business meal, and even though she was always the one who had asked for the check. This had even happened once when the man had been an intern who didn't look a day over 20. Even if they didn't always put the check in front of her, there should have been enough uncertainty about who might be paying to place it in the middle. Wait, she called out to the waiter as he was turning from their table. Here you go. She reached across the table to take the check, slipped her card into the jacket, and handed it back to him. As soon as he left, she whispered to her son, Watch this. He'll bring the check back to you. I put the odds at six to one. Do you really think so? I mean, you were the one who gave it to him, and I don't think I look like a Deborah. Doesn't matter, she said. She was right, of course. A few minutes later, the waiter once again placed the little black folder in front of her son, this time with Deborah's card sticking out. Thank you very much, sir, the waiter said. That's so appalling, 
her son said, shaking his head. Deborah shrugged. She was used to it and didn't, or couldn't, let it bother her. She was reminded of how, when their mobile phone company rolled out its autocomplete emojis, typing in CEO or doctor made a male emoji immediately appear. Her daughter Olivia had been appalled, but Deborah had admitted she didn't really care. Not just because she didn't have an emoji habit, there were simply bigger things to get worked up about. Even as a female CEO, she herself had to admit that most CEOs were male. So, in terms of probability, the autocomplete wasn't even wrong. The mobile company had rectified the faux pas, eventually. Of course, it was a lot easier to reprogram a phone than to reprogram a human to make the same assumption. Deborah herself had to stop herself sometimes from using the pronoun he without thinking when talking about certain professions. Even in the face of all the evidence, the waiter's unconscious wiring seemed to have overpowered the facts. Quite simply, the autocomplete in his brain had told him that it must be a sir who paid the bill. Unconscious biases were like autocompletes, Deborah realized, but they reared their head a lot more often than when you were writing a message on your mobile phone. These types of events were so normal that she realized she probably didn't even notice them much of the time, perhaps due to her own mental autocompletes. She felt sick on her drive home as she remembered a memo she'd sent out the week before, announcing promotions to the rest of the firm. Deborah had just cut and pasted paragraphs that managers had sent her without giving much thought to them beyond fixing a few typos or ensuring they were all the same length. As soon as she got home, she pulled the memo up in the email sent box on her phone and found the sentences she'd remembered. Congratulations to Mara for her promotion to Senior Manager of Analytics. We're appreciative of Mara's incredible work ethic and also grateful for her exceptional baking skills. We've probably all gained a few pounds from her brownies. She looked at the description below Mara's. Congratulations to Michael for his promotion to Senior Manager of Analytics. He recently led analytical work that was exactly what was needed to bring a critical project across the finish line, leading to $5 million in revenue. The implications hit her. They had hundreds of employees at the company. Most people reading the memo wouldn't know every promoted employee. She could imagine Mara's manager defending the paragraph, saying that Mara liked bringing baked goods in, that it was important when it came to building a positive team environment. All of that might be true, but people reading the memo would perhaps remember only one thing about each person. With Michael, they would remember the results. With Mara, they would remember the brownies. Deborah's chest felt heavy as she noticed other disturbing patterns. The paragraphs about men were always focused on concrete accomplishments. The paragraphs about women, whether sent to Deborah by male or female managers, whether they were new managers or more tenured, were more likely to include words that connoted effort rather than ability. Hardworking. The female paragraphs were more likely to include basic job descriptions she will be doing XYZ activities in her new role, rather than ringing endorsements, she is one of the best at XYZ activities. The paragraphs for men were more likely to have phrases like leader and trailblazer applied to them as opposed to good phrases like very productive, very good skill set. 
She could edit out the mental autocompletes the next time she wrote a promotion memo, but that happened once a year. The more pervasive problem was the seemingly offhand comments and mental autocompletes that happened every day. Well, I'm excited to be here with my very good friends, Veronica and Stephen LaFamina, who read the book together. So I'd love for you both to tell us all a little bit about yourselves and your book reading experience. Thanks, Melanie. We are super excited to be here today. I work in the nonprofit industry, so I do strategy work and organizational design and process improvement in the nonprofit world. But before that, spent a lot of time as a consultant doing strategic communications and public affairs in a wide range of industries. And thanks for having us, Melanie. I had a really great experience reading the book and talking with Veronica along the way as we were reading it. I've been working in education my whole career. I started as a middle school math and science teacher. And since then, I've had an aspiration to see education from lots of different angles and went to business school, took on a management role inside of a instead of school districts, and then now work as a consultant working with state agencies and districts around the country, variety of roles, kind of working with their C-level folks. So this was one of the scenes that we laughed about a little bit because just as we were dating, we definitely had the moments where we'd go to dinner. I would get the check and Veronica has out earned me for the duration of our whole relationship. Like there's never been a moment where like, if you looked at numbers, it's like, no, maybe Veronica should get the check, but um, <laughs> <didn't matter. laughs> right? it's a, I think at one time it was like a promotion or something. It was just, it's, there's been some obvious examples. So this scene was comically close to home, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think so many women have had this experience. And like, in addition to what Steven's saying, you know, we've been together almost 11 years, and it's happened a lot (laughs) in that time. But also, like, I've had it happen with my little brother, right, where I was, we were like at this fancy restaurant where the women's menus don't even have prices. That was the level of like, only the men's menus have prices. Wait, say that again, really? Yeah. So it was we were at this very fancy restaurant in Italy, that I basically had like a gift card to go do. And like, we were seated. And then like, you know, my little brother who had just graduated from college gets the menu with all the prices. And I have the ladies menu that has no prices. on it. <laughs> and so I and he was like, do they think I'm paying because I am certainly not paying. <laughs> this and so I so identify right with that moment of Deborah having that conversation with her son. And I think like as she's exploring the mental autocompletes, you know, there is like this question that kind of hangs out there like, well, what harm is there? Right. And I think the work right of equity a lot of the time is to say, well, we're not then exploring the potential of everyone who can be in that role. It matters that there is that representation, right? It matters that you can see other people in those roles. And when we do our own autocompletes, we're suppressing potential and suppressing opportunity to see something in a new way. And Stephen and I were talking about this a little bit. I think some people struggle with the word bias and they struggle with, well, I'm not biased, right? I'm very open-minded. But what they forget is that we all have bias, right? We all have implicit associations that we automatically connect fire engines with red in our brain. (laughs) So 
that's true also when it comes to gender dynamics, race dynamics, and kind of who we think of when we hear these certain terms. So for me, when I first took a few implicit association tests, like I realized like, oh, I do have this association of men with technology and not women. Meanwhile, my sister is a civil engineer and my sister-in-law is a really amazing surgeon. I have all these examples of women in my life who you would think would counter that implicit association, but it's still there because that's what I've picked up and learned over the years. And that I have that even being a woman, right? And being a woman who's been a young executive and senior leader, and I still have those kinds of associations. So I think we all have that, whether it's something we developed individually or because of society. The programming starts just so young that even all the evidence could be to the contrary and our programming is still there. I'd be curious as to how you think about this as parents when you think about the books or the media that your kids are consuming. I know they're very little still. Yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty conscious about trying to just recognize with them situations that are reinforcing a bias along these lines, whether it's gender, whether it's racial, right? I remember when our oldest was a little bit younger, he's a boy, lots of even educational television shows really center around a male lead character. And so Stephen went through this period with him where he was explaining how that's not cool, that all of these shows, it's only a boy who's in the lead. Like, what about that guy's sister? What's her story? What do we want to learn about her? And so we purposely sought out TV shows like for the TV they were watching or especially in books because we would do a lot of book reading in this house to make sure that we had female lead characters and that those female lead characters might be dancing ballet, but they also might be building box architecture. Another example that comes to mind for me is our choices of churches and religion. And I remember we were kind of looking for different churches locally and trying to figure out what was going to be best for our family. And we walked into one particular mass and we were able to see a woman as the pastor of that church. And it was honestly a surprising place where where that came up in terms of how we raise kids because I wasn't expecting to see it there. And I almost had like a visceral emotional reaction when I saw a woman leading the congregation because I frankly hadn't seen it before. And I just wanted that for my kids. Well, right. Definitely for our daughter, but also for our son, right? You want boys and girls to both be experiencing what it is to see women in roles where people are looking up to them, not because it's all about aspirations and who you can grow up to be, but because the more it's normal for kids to see that gender should not be a defining factor in whether or not you can do certain things. We do have a daughter. And I think with her, like we've got to be careful because the number one autocomplete for young girls is they're cute, right? It is so hard to not call an adorable three-year-old girl cute. And like we really try. We really try to use other language and to encourage our extended family and friends to use other language. But it's deeply programmed that they're just stinking cute. So how do you not feel bad about and not give them a complex by never calling them cute? How do you balance you are cute and incredibly creative? Or you're so good at math and I love your pink tutu. That was a great choice today. This idea of an education, the idea of math identity and when that forms and what that means for what professions they might go into and how often a young boy might hear 
you're wonderful at math, doing real well at science, and ask a question like, what might a female student hear? And that's what I see playing out in this scene is nobody's telling Deborah that she's bad and she can't pay. They're just telling the guy, good job. You have the paycheck. You have the money. You can do this. Like all these hundreds of compliments that guys might get implicitly throughout their time at work that builds their identity and their ability and their confidence to be successful. And that's just basically starving the women and not giving any of those validation. You know, when we were doing pandemic homeschool earlier last year, we were printing off a bunch of resources. And one of them that I loved for both of our kids was asking key questions for reading comprehension. And one of them was, whose story aren't we hearing? Whose perspective isn't being heard? And I think that's just a beautiful question for life (laughs) that we should have, which is, Just because we're hearing things from a particular angle or particular point of view, we may not have the full story. And we want to be conscious of, is that narrator someone in a more privileged position? Are they someone who may have a specific way of looking at something based on what they've learned or where they've lived? And how do we be mindful of that so that we're not discounting people who maybe whose stories haven't made it to us yet? The question about the emotional reaction here. And I think this is one of the big differences in how we read or experienced the book. I think mine is like from a position of privilege. And as a white man in workplaces, I almost have this ability to distance myself from the dynamics. And if somebody is saying, this is my lived experience, this is what I go through every day, this really affected me. I think one of my first steps in doing my own personal work was to just hear that and take it at face value and see where that journey goes. And You asked that question before about why would a guy pick this up? Why should a guy pick this up? This was a great gateway to have almost a page-turning novel where you had characters that were developing and growing and there were plot twists throughout almost creates that moment where you can have a reason, if you really need a reason, right, to, to get into learning more about gender dynamics in the workplace and then see these experiences unfold. Experience, I'd say, are pretty real, right, that I've seen play out in my own workplaces. And it just kind of makes you a little bit more of a convert by the end. Yeah. Like without giving anything away, there was like a certain part in the book where we had learned so much along the way. And that did give me this big feeling of like, who's going to figure it out? And how are they going to do it? Right. And I think that that for me was maybe the most emotional response was not necessarily the individual things, but sort of as we move with the characters through their day-to-day work life and what that looks like, whether you're someone in leadership, male or female, right? Or someone who's working to make your workplace a better place, it can be hard to feel like, how are we going to tackle all of this? Seeing it all knitted together, there is that sense of like, oh gosh, this is so hard. Because it's a novel, you're like rooting for your, your cast of characters to kind of get it right and figure it out. I think too, communication is tough right? And there is a level of trustworthiness that someone has to have to be for like a marginalized population to want to share. When I think about equity overall, right, the concept of trust comes up a lot. And I I just heard a great quote the other day in a webinar I was listening to, which is, can we stop talking about trust and instead talk about trustworthiness? And so like one of the things that I love about this book is that there is this examination of self that says, how do we become trustworthy? Not like just how do we stem the bleeding, right? Or how do we deal with some of the 
challenges that we're dealing with, but what does it mean to be a leader or an organization that is trustworthy so that we can change and grow? So the opportunity here to consciously evolve to consciously take this information and learning and say, what am I going to do as an individual? What are the things I can do in my sphere of influence? But then also, what does that mean for how I act in meetings? How am I making space for people whose voices maybe aren't heard as often as mine? What does it mean for me as a leader when I think about the types of skills and capabilities I'm looking for in the next generation of leaders at an organization? And how can I take that moment to not just roll along my merry way of what I've known and my personal experience that I've developed, but pause and breathe and really be conscious in developing that culture and taking the information that's available to me now to make a change for it to be the way that I want to see it, right? And I think, to me, that's part of the learning here too, is there is a lot of Like, I think it's possible to have a little bit of an identity crisis if you are a woman who has succeeded in the the business environment or organizational environment as it is now. Either you're like, well, I did it, they can too, right? Or you're like, well, I survived that and I want to make sure it's better for others, but I'm not entirely sure how to do that. And it's not like magically you wave a wand and everything gets better, right? It takes practice and effort. And I like that about this book in combination with those individual connections is that sometimes like the best work we do to change takes one piece of information that we learned or one story from a loved one or from a friend. And we're able to then change our behavior based on that or our perspective based on that. And that gets us one step closer to the next level of growth and the next opportunity for something different. And I think too, on that point about the power of a story in some of my consulting work with the education system, when I work with superintendents, definitely they want to see data. Definitely they want to make sure they're going to build their goals around that, but they can't get into classrooms very often. They can't actually see live examples. Like if I'm able to actually convey something that I saw directly happening inside their district in a story so that they actually understand what's happening and how it's affecting kids, it can change the course of an entire district strategy. I think similarly, when I think about, Veronica, the examples like you shared about your own professional experience and the examples I saw in this book, and we talked about this book being powerful because it's a novel and it's really interesting to read, I would say the examples are equally powerful and something that if you're if you're a guy trying to figure out how are you going to emotionally connect with this topic, it brings that to life and it gives you, again, an insight into something that you may not have taken the time to see before. So again, just a really powerful, powerful part of what we read here. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was so great to be here. Hey, thanks for inviting us. This is wonderful. Well, we just heard from Veronica and Steven and Melanie. I am personally still trying to get over the shock of the story Veronica shared, this experience of being in the Italian restaurant with her younger brother. And not only assumption was made he would pay the check, but her menu did not even have the price listed. Like I actually had to go back and listen to that a second time to make sure I heard her correctly. I couldn't believe it. Seriously, though, I I love the way this excerpted scene starts because this moment of the check being handed to Deborah's son rather than to Deborah herself. 
I've lived it. It has happened to me multiple times. In fact, as recently as pre-pandemic, when I was taking my team out to lunch, it happens to me even with my family. I felt like it was just an incredibly relatable moment for me to really understand this mental autocomplete concept. So tell me a little bit more about what led you to write this scene. Well, similarly, as a business leader, I probably took male colleagues out to lunch or breakfast at least once or not multiple times a week. And without fail, every single time, even if I asked for the check, took the check, put my credit card down, gave it to them, had been in that same restaurant with that exact same server 10 times before, they just could not get in their brain that I would be the one who was paying the bill. And it actually did make me think about when iPhone first started doing those emojis, those autocomplete emojis. I remember one day typing in, I can't remember if it was CEO or doctor, but I typed in one of those in a text message and and saw the male emoji and thought, well, did they not even think about the fact that there should be a female emoji? But of course, the phone can be reprogrammed much more quickly than a person can be reprogrammed because all throughout our lives, as Stephen and Veronica talked about, even in the books that kids read when they're young children, those mental autocompletes are forming through that kind of programming. The word often used is unconscious bias, but I've found that people have a bias against the word bias and that saying unconscious bias just tends to shut so many conversations down. Yeah, I've heard you say before, a mental autocomplete concept there, it's just reinforcing an assumption, a stereotype, a social norm. Uh, and I imagine as you were speaking and researching for the book, you heard plenty of other anecdotes aside from just the check being handed to the man at the table. What are some of the other ones that come to mind? Well, in the scene we just heard where Deborah looks at the promotion memo that she just sent out where Michael is recognized for his revenues and Mara is recognized for her baking skills, that was one that actually came up a lot in my research. At one point, I posted a message on the NaNoWriMo discussion boards for folks in podcast land. Uh, NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month happens every November. And Folks who want to get kickstarted on writing a novel, it's just this great community of people who commit to writing every single day and getting a draft done during that month. And one of the things that I loved as I was starting Beyond Leaning In during NaNoWriMo is that they had these amazing message boards where you can post a a research question you have because a character is going to do X, Y, Z, and you want to know if people have experience doing that thing. So for example, someone posted on the message board that they had a character who was taking a cross-country train. And that was something that I had done recently, and I was able to write about my experience for that person. So I also posted on the message board, just asking for stories people had of times where they felt that there were challenges to being a woman at work. And and I said that I actually wanted small stories, not big, egregious, you know, Harvey Weinstein typed. And it was interesting to me how many stories were about baking women being worried about being identified by their baking and not being recognized for other things. And and then the opposite end, women saying that they realized that if a meeting was going to be particularly tense, they made sure to bake something in order to get the temperature down. There were just so many stories about baking. Yeah, I had an experience in my career where I actually had that conversation with a woman who was on my team who 
in no way did I want to prevent her from contributing to the morale of the team or engagement or something that meant a lot to her. It was a way of sharing something with our work community. But I was nervous on her behalf that that would become what she was known for and that her analytical skills and the insights that she was generating and all of her other contributions would be overlooked and she would become known simply as the person who brought the snacks. And I sometimes wonder, did I do the right thing? Did I sort of project onto her my own experiences? But it was something that, at least with my generation, I'd become really aware of. And it's unfortunate because a man doesn't have to worry about that. A, a woman who brings baked goods into the office is worried that if she does it too much, then she's fulfilling people's mental autocompletes, thinking about her in terms of being a caretaker rather than related to other responsibilities she might have. Whereas a man who bakes is suddenly this more well-rounded person and it's going to be a plus for him. You know, I imagine you had to make some pretty deliberate decisions about what to include or to exclude about the company and the characters, given the fact that mental autocompletes impact all of us so often. I'd love to hear a little bit of behind the scenes of how you made those choices of how much backstory we needed. That was really tricky because I did worry about the mental autocompletes people already had. So I thought there are some characters who, in my head, I had a fully fleshed out personal life for them. And then I thought, okay, if I give too much of that detail, are you going to think of this character first in terms of their personal life instead of their work life? And that's exactly the same challenge that women face at work. One of the decisions I made was to make one of the prominent male characters, I, I won't say who to not give out any spoilers, but I made a male character a lead parent. He's the one who takes on the majority of the childcare responsibilities in his family. He has a wife who has a job that requires a much more demanding schedule than his does. And many readers said that that actually was a really big surprise for them when they got to that part. So Melanie, I know you referenced this earlier, but I was also really appreciating Stephen and Veronica's comments about just how young these unconscious biases or these mental autocompletes can start. So their characterization in their children's books or the gendered compliments that we give. I've had that conversation with my sister about our young nephews and not wanting to reinforce certain stereotypes, not projecting our sense of gender onto children's natural play. It really does start super early. That's right. It's incredibly commonplace. And that's one of the reasons I wanted Deborah to really have that moment of reflecting on the promotion memo. The mental autocomplete happened. It was wired in her programming. And yet she's able to acknowledge her own behavior and realize that she actually can do better in the future. She can stop that mental autocomplete in its tracks. And that's something that I hope all of us and, and our readers can commit to. I want to give a big thank you to Stephen, to Veronica for joining us and sharing their reflections. We are looking forward to our next episode. We're going to be joined by Jeff Martin and Jackson Boyer. They are two millennial male allies, and they are going to be talking about another concept from the book, points versus assist, which I've made the terrible joke before, and I'm going to make it again. First time I heard about it, it made me think about March Madness and basketball season. Tell us, what is actually points versus assist? Well, leave it to Carla to connect something to sports. I'll tell y'all that 
Carla was the person throughout the book. Every time I wrote a sports metaphor, I had to check them with several friends, including Carla, because I am not a sports person and often flubbed my metaphors. But points versus assists in this case explores the concept of when we take credit for something ourselves versus support and tee up opportunities for others. And I think this is important as a concept in particular to talk about the role that male allies can play in the workforce to amplify the contributions of women should be a great discussion, and I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about the mental autocomplete, in addition to finding information in the book, Beyond Leaning In, I've been spending the month of March releasing one webcomic a day on social media, illustrating some of the concepts and scenes and ideas in Beyond Leaning In. There is a comic on the mental autocomplete that you can find on my social channels or by looking into the show notes where we'll point you to that one in particular. Thank you all for listening. I'm El Nuho, author of Beyond Leaning In. Please buy the book on Amazon or through www.beyondleaningin.com where you can contact us and also learn more about the broader Beyond Leaning In conversation and community. This podcast is produced by Katie Sunku Wood at Studio Pod Media. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Music is by Mountain House. Please subscribe, rate, share, and get in touch with your ideas. <laughs>